0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar panel. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now.
1: The new phase we're going into uh, related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it.
0: Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem.
2: It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later.
0: Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 4th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As long-time listeners to this show know, we've done a number of shows on the climate modeling work done for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, including Episodes 49, 51, 57, and 112. In those episodes, we have closely examined the assumptions and the modeling methods in the IPCC scenarios for how much warming we may experience due to climate change, and we have asked why those scenarios don't seem to reflect the progress so far on energy transition nor how energy transition might affect the progression of climate change change in the future. In the most recent of those episodes, episode 112, we talked with a contributor to the IPCC modeling work, Glenn Peters, about why the highest emissions scenario, known in the literature as RCP 8.5, should be considered an outlier at best and not as a, quote, business as usual default path that the world is already on, as far too many journalists and climate scientists who should know better have repeatedly claimed. But we have not yet directly asked one of the modelers involved in this work to explain why the models don't seem to recognize the current and future progress of energy transition or to defend the models as they are constructed. So today we're going to do that in the very first three-way conversation we've done on this podcast. To present the energy analyst critique of the IPCC models, I invited Michael Liebreich, an energy expert who is the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, to come back on the show. You may remember Michael from episode 85, where he told us about Project BOW, a microgrid project supporting a neonatal clinic in Sierra Leone. And to represent the IPCC modeling work, I invited Dr. Nico Bauer, an integrated assessment modeler with the Potsdam Institute based in Potsdam, Germany. Since 2000, he's worked on and with various major climate models, including the ones known as DICE, Mind, and Remind. He has worked on integrated assessment modeling for 13 years, and he has a broad publication record on energy and integrated assessment modeling with a focus on fossil fuel markets. He also helped develop the shared socioeconomic pathways used in the IPCC framework, particularly the one known as SSP5, so he has an expert understanding of these models and how they work. And I'm very pleased that both of these experts were willing to spend the time to have this conversation and share what they know with our listeners. And spend some time they did. This conversation went on for three hours straight, which, even after substantial editing, would be a bit of an endurance test for our listeners. So, as I've done in the past with conversations that went on a lot longer than expected, I've decided to break it into two pieces. The first part of the conversation, which we'll hear today, mostly deals with why the IPCC models and emissions scenarios are constructed the way they are. We'll hear the second part of the conversation in episode 117, in which I will try to bring the disparate perspectives on this topic together and try to find a way to bridge the gap between a diverse community of climate modelers, IPCC integrated assessment modelers, energy analysts, and those who are more concerned with the communication side of climate forecasts. So I hope you'll bear with us as we explore this difficult and essential topic in even greater depth. Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll note a hopeful new reading on energy-related carbon emissions, we'll mark the progress of the UK in decarbonizing its power sector, we'll review some very interesting projects in the UK that are recovering and reusing waste heat, we'll compare the performance of oil and gas stocks to wind and solar stocks, and we'll sound the death knell for Poland's coal power sector. And before we get into the conversation, I just want to offer a warm welcome to our latest site licensee, Stanford University. As our listeners surely know from episodes 101, 102, and 107, I'm a big fan of the work that their faculty and students are doing on Energy Transition, and I know they're big fans of the show as well. So I'm absolutely thrilled that the entire Stanford community now has access to the show. And remember, if you think your university or company could benefit from a site license, just go to energytransitionshow.com slash group to see all our licensing arrangements and get started. And now let's get to part one of our interview with Michael Liebreich and Nico Bauer, recorded February 10th, 2020. So let's bring them into the conversation now. Welcome Michael and Nico to the Energy Transition Show.
1: Thanks very much. It's great to hear your voice and hello to Nico.
2: Yeah, hi Michael. It's also great to have you now online and also thanks to Chris for hosting this podcast on this very important and timely discussion.
0: Great. So just to set up the foundation for this conversation, I want to remind our listeners that this episode actually builds upon several previous shows, which they may want to listen to first, if they haven't already. First, there was episode 49 with energy transition show producer Justin Ritchie, whose PhD thesis showed why the highest CO2 concentration scenario in the IPCC framework, known as RCP 8.5, was based on very unlikely assumptions about future coal consumption globally, and was therefore unlikely. Then there was episode 51 with Bas van Raven, in which we delved deeply into the details of the IPCC modeling framework, and how the shared socioeconomic pathways, or SSPs, set the context for various representative concentration pathways, or RCPs, for CO2 concentrations within a number of integrated assessment models, or IAMs. And <laughs> I realized, right off the bat, there's a lot of acronyms here, and this is all very complex, so I hope that listeners will listen to those episodes first where we explain all this stuff. And then there was the more recent discussion with Glenn Peters, who is one of the climate scientists who works on these scenarios, in episode 112, in which we talked about the fossil fuel combustion that would be necessary to get to a high-concentration scenario like RCP 8.5, plus there were the other eight episodes in our climate science miniseries, so we're going to build upon all of that today rather than reiterate it. Now, Michael, I want to start with you because I think you deserve some credit or at least maybe some notoriety <laughs> for helping to amplify Justin's findings and raise the salience of the RCPA 8.5 issue just to begin with. And I think part of the reason why you were successful in grabbing people's attention about this is because you got a bit salty. You called RCPA.5 bollocks on Twitter. Now, I don't want to relitigate the question of whether or not RCPA.5 is in fact bollocks. I think we hashed that out more than enough in episode 112 with Glenn Peters. But suffice it to say that neither one of us would regard RCPA.5 eight point five as a particularly useful or realistic scenario at this point in time, although maybe Nico has a different perspective on that. Instead, I wanna use this conversation to examine the role of climate scenarios, to explore how those scenarios came to be and what we can be doing now to make our climate modeling more accurate and above all, more useful to policymakers. So, Michael, why did you decide to amplify this point that RCP 8.5 is exceptionally unlikely, and what have we learned from the approximately 47 billion tweets that have gone around it so far?
1: <laughs> okay. Thanks very much for bringing me into this. So before I just address the you know RCP 8.5 is bollocks thing, I just want to say a few things because various discussions get quite heated around this. There is a little preamble that I want to be absolutely sure that people understand. I am extremely concerned about climate change. Okay. So nothing about anything that I've said or that I'm going to say here on this podcast is going to be, oh, you know, it's fine. We're going to get to three degrees and it's not a big deal and we shouldn't do anything. Absolutely not. So that's the first point. The second point is, I really, really need and want the IPCC process to work and the scenarios. And we're going to talk about the the SSPs and the next set of scenarios. We really need those to work and to have integrity and credibility because they are so foundational. And I can't tell you how many discussions that I have in boardrooms with investors and so on, where if I can't Just kind of wave an IPCC report and say, "Hey, look, you know, if you want one and a half degrees, this is what it says. Or if you want two degrees, or if you want an inhabitable environment for investments longer term, this is the definitive, absolute gold standard analysis and so on." So, you know, I'm doing this because I want good scenarios. I'm not a breaker. I'm not trying to just destroy things. I'm actually trying to, in good faith, improve them. With that as the preamble, why did I go to town on RCP 8.5, and? Really, it's to do with, I would say, three things. You've explained how implausible it is, and I agree with that. I think we've done that to death almost. But I also saw this incredible effort to defend it and to retain it and to say well it is so plausible and no it's not and you don't have to get to 8.5 watts per square meter by 2100 still to be rcp 8.5 and of course actually you do and then other people saying rcp 8.5 is not about emissions it's only about concentrations which is not true oh well you might not be able to get there with emissions but there are always feedbacks and then you sort of show that actually the feedbacks aren't big enough and to me, this really, really undermines the credibility of the use of RCP 8.5. And I'm hoping that Nico is going to emphasize how useful it has been in the modeling process, because certainly as a kind of vision of the future, and as a way of deriving good policy outcomes, it's just not. And so I think you've got these issues of credibility. In terms of policy, It really, really makes a difference whether we're going to get to 8.5 watts per square meter by 2100 or by some other time in centuries or whenever because of feedbacks or whatever. We're going to make actual policy decisions based on these IPCC reports, based on AR5, now in future AR6. And if we don't really have robust and plausible understanding of where we're headed, I very much worry that we'll make bad decisions. So the third reason why I really weighed in was I was just really being pulled in different directions because I have young children. My daughter came and said, Daddy, the penguins are going to be functionally extinct by 2100. And I don't know what to say to her. It's based on a scenario which I know to be untrue, but I can't then in my professional life pretend that it's true because of some messaging and because of there's some kind of need to remain in solidarity with others who are working very hard on the same sort of issues. So those are my reasons to sort of weigh in and say, okay, look, I'm going to have to open this up because it's not happening and we really need to let some light in here.
0: Okay. So I'm hearing that your primary interest is in how these scenarios are interpreted and applied and by whom and for what purposes. And I think that's a really key point here, because I suspect that NICO, along with many other climate modelers, is actually more focused on the integrity of the scenarios themselves and on the science that informs them, how they're constructed, that it holds together, than in how they're applied necessarily. So before we go any farther, NICO, I'd like you to respond to that. Why do you think these climate scenarios are focused the way they are, and is there a reason for CP8.5 to be on the table?
2: So, I think that Michael brings up a lot of very good points, and it seems that there is quite some confusion that was produced over the years also. Because terminology has changed and I perceive the discussion about the RCP 8.5 as a discussion about what is a business as usual? What is a scenario that we should expect? What is the probable future of emissions? And this is where a lot of methodological issues and labeling issues come in. So basically the term business as usual is outdated. I hardly know any publication in the mitigation area of climate change, so how to reduce emissions, that uses the term business as usual. So what we usually do is that we define some baseline. And these baselines are considered not to have any climate policy included. Climate policy that directly addresses emissions or removals of CO2. You assume everything away that has an impact, directly an intentional impact on the emissions like CO2 taxes or something. However, you can have all different kinds of policies like energy efficiency improvements or forest protection or others included. These baselines are very important and we spend a lot of time to analyze them. Usually what we do with a baseline is to impose climate policies upon them. But in the first step, we analyze what are the important factors. What is determining the future of emissions? And sure, we have population scenarios that are produced and developed by demographic experts. We have economic scenarios of GDP growth that are developed by growth economists. Here, for example at PIC, but also at other places in the world, we take these kind of assumptions as a boundary conditions, as inputs for our energy and land use models. Energy and land use because these are the largest sources of the emissions. And we try to cover all the different greenhouse gas emissions and pollutants and also the land use changes. It is already a very, very important task to dig out all the different important factors, like technological change or the importance of fossil fuel availability. And this is something that is important for a 8.5 Watt per meter square scenario. So once you have this kind of baseline scenario, you can impose policies like the NDCs. The nationally determined contributions that were pledged by the nation states under the Paris agreement. And then you can look at what are the emissions. You can also extrapolate the ambition level of the NDCs throughout the century, so far beyond their actual time frame. Another standard question is what would be the globally cost effective emission reduction pathway and what would it look like if you want to achieve a two degree target or well below two degree target as has been agreed on in the paris agreement the result is very important so first the ndc's in 2030 already lead to reductions in emissions from the baseline scenario but in comparison with a cost-effective two-degree emission pathway, this is not enough. What we also see that in the long term, maintaining, only maintaining the ambition level of the NDCs with a very high likelihood be in conflict with a two-degree target. But still, these NDC scenarios, they make a difference to the no policy baseline scenario and it is very important to see this difference. So the business as usual terminology that is still around in some areas of the literature, particularly in the impacts literature, this is old terminology. It is not used anymore. And we usually talk of baseline, no policy baseline or no policy case. The ssp5 scenario that reaches 8.5 watt per square meter is such a no climate policy scenario however there is strong support on fossil fuels there's strong support of bringing the different reserves online there is a supportive regulatory framework instead renewables are not so much supported instead nuclear is also subject to restrictions, and so on and so forth. But these are baseline assumptions. We know they are important. We can vary them. And the same model can produce very, very different results, depending on these baseline assumptions. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. So, I understand what you said here. I guess something that's still Continues to sort of bedevil and confuse me, and I suspect it bedevils and confuses a lot of other people. Is how we got to this 8.5 watts per meter squared of radiative forcing by 2100. Whether you're looking at it just from the RCP-8.5 perspective or within the SSP5 scenario, it's not really based on a forecast of fossil fuel combustion, as far as I can tell. So where did it come from? How do we get to this? level of radiative forcing if it's not based on a scenario of fossil fuel combustion.
2: So, this is a very good point. And the first thing that I want to highlight here, this is not a forecast. A forecast is usually something where you try to extrapolate based on past experiences. What the SSP5 is, is part of a larger framework. The shared socio-economic pathways that were developed after the RCP scenarios were developed. The RCPs provided emission scenarios on all the different greenhouse gases, plus also short-lived forces aerosols, and that were used by the climate models to run them. And, yeah, climate modelers also called this RCP 8.5 a business as usual. Mm. Okay, as said earlier, that is a misleading terminology. What it is, it is a high emission scenario that was developed with a purpose to reach 8.5 watt per square meters in 2100. So the forcing is a composite of all different kinds of forces. CO2 is Probably the most important, you have CH4, N2O, you have all the different aerosols and then you have indirect effects from ammonia, cloud formation processes and so on that add up to this total forcing. The most important indeed is CO2. And the SSP framework was starting at the question, What are the challenges for Mitigation and Adaptation? The framework starts very simple and distinguishes Mitigation and Adaptation challenges simply in Small, Medium and High. We then located five SSPs in this space. There's a middle-of-the-road scenario and four deviations. The middle of the road is labeled SSP2 and it is the one with medium challenges. The one with high challenges to mitigation and high challenges to adaptation is the SSP 5. So we start with the SSP for the middle of the road and then ask the question, what are all the factors that would lead to high mitigation but small adaptation challenges? The re- resulting high-level quality narrative then was labeled fossil-fueled development. The SSP narratives are published by Brian O'Neill and a team, and they are formulated as a qualitative storytelling kind of exercise. It includes population, economic growth and convergence, energy technology development, land use, air pollution policies, and what have you. Also, it includes non climate policies. So the SSP 5 narrative starts with an introductory sentence. It says, driven by the economic success of industrialized and emerging economies, this world places increasing faith in competitive markets, innovation, participatory societies to produce rapid technological progress and development of human capital as the path to sustainable development." And then the narrative continues. The push for economic and social development is coupled with the exploitation of abundant fossil fuel resources and the adoption of resource- and energy-intensive lifestyles around the world. All these factors lead to rapid growth of the global economy. The narrative there also assumes trade liberalization and free movement of people across borders. It concludes, the strong reliance on fossil fuels and the lack of global global environmental concern, result in potentially high challenges to mitigation. The attainment of human development goals, robust economic growth and highly engineered infrastructure results in relatively low challenges to adaptation. And due to this high growth and strong reliance on fossil fuels, it is called fossil fuel development. The assumptions in the end led to the SSP5 to be the 8.5 scenario. There was another candidate that was the SSP3, the regional rivalry narrative that was placed relatively high on the list, or my bets would have been in the beginning before we did the model runs, I would have assumed uh, SSP3 hits the 8.5 mark because of high population growth and also energy security concerns and stagnant technologies that lead to use of coal and so on. However, it finally turned out that SSP3 was not hitting the 8.5 mark. This is a rather important finding about which we were surprised. It was not that we thought SSP5 is the 8.5 Watt per square meter scenario. It was we have had two candidates. SSP3 turned out to be too low in economic growth, therefore too low in energy demand. It was also... A relatively air pollutant intensive scenario so the aerosols have a negative effect on the forcing that should not be underestimated and also the lack of global trade and that the energy security concerns lead to lower trade of fossil fuels particularly in coal that Dampened the growth of fossil fuel use and therefore the 8.5 mark was not hit. We mention these things in the various publications around the SSPs and that the trade in fossil fuels is indeed an important thing.
0: Okay. So I think I'm hearing that, first of all, RCP 8.5 was not based on a combustion scenario. Then that whole framework was sort of superseded by the SSP framework the narrative based framework and in that framework SSP5 was able to achieve that same level of warming that 8.5 watts per meter squared of radiative forcing by 2100 but again that was not necessarily based on a specific scenario of fossil fuel combustion it was more based on a narrative about what could happen in the world as economic growth and population Population and energy growth continues to proceed
2: mm-hmm. but go ahead so the original RCP 8.5 scenario was developed with the message globiome model also an integrated assessment model with full coverage of the energy and the land use sector and the emissions are the result of the use of fossil fuels and the land use changes and all the related emissions the ssp5 is not only a narrative it started with a narrative we then made quantifications using various integrated assessment models of economic growth of energy sector development of land use change and the emissions are tied to activities that are represented in these models. Okay. So it is basically activity-based models, and you can track emissions to activities.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Now, I think where I get hung up, and I think where Michael gets hung up here as well, is that we see, of course, the world around us is not a no-policy world, and we see a lot of activity going on in energy transition, which is rapidly pushing coal out of the system, which is eventually probably starting now, pushing natural gas even out of the system, which is reducing the future demand of oil because we're transitioning internal combustion engines away from petroleum, et cetera. So are the SSPs, or specifically the SSP-5 baseline scenario, in contradiction with what's happening now? And are the results that it assumes about
2: the fossil fuel sector
0: implausible?
2: This is a very important and delicate question that you raise and it puts me into a little uncomfortable position of taking a look into the crystal ball.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year, or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to the International Energy Agency, global CO2 emissions from energy flattened in 2019 after two years of increases. Most of the decline came from power generation, where CO2 emissions fell by 1.2%, even as electricity production rose slightly. Most of that decline occurred in advanced economies, where emissions fell by 3.2%, thanks to strong growth for renewables, fuel switching from coal to gas, and slightly higher nuclear power production. Power sector emissions in advanced economies have declined steadily since 2008, even as electricity generation has increased slightly, prompting IEA to say the trends, quote, suggest clean energy transitions are underway, led by the power sector. Milder weather in many large economies also reduced energy demand compared with 2018. Global CO2 emissions from coal use declined by 1.3%. Outside the advanced economies, particularly in China and Southeast Asia, emissions rose, largely due to increased use of coal. However, emissions from coal-fired power plants actually fell in India as renewables grew strongly. Strong growth in renewables, plus the first year of operation for seven new large nuclear power plants, helped dampen the rise in China's CO2 emissions. Item 2. A big share of the credit for the flattening of energy-related CO2 emissions last year goes to the UK, according to a new study done by the Imperial College of London for Drax. The UK. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.